Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed and I, I'm going to let him say hello, but Ed and I have just been talking. You know, one of the things about this show, one of the things about this show is um, trying to decide the right tone, the right topics, the right areas of subject matter for this show, and, you know, trying to decide kind of how much of ourselves we should really put into the show and how many, how much of the show should just be J.D. and Ed's unfiltered hot takes on various things happening in the life of the church. And Ed believes that in addition to the Pillar Institute, we should have a show. Or part of the Pillar Institute. That is much could be. <laughs> more, yeah, that is part of the Pillar Institute. We should have a show that is much more centered around our unfiltered, unvarnished, and probably controversial hot takes. Uh, it's I. We if we were to do that, it damn well better work. Define work. I mean, to be clear, I don't think that um, this this sort of idea would change necessarily what we talked about too much. But I think <laughs> the terms in which we talked about it would change quite a bit. We try to. Uh, we try to take a level of impartiality here, a level of professionalism here, a level of, um, uh, of pr- uh, because we're also reporters, a level of sort of professional neutrality. And uh, one, it, were we not doing that, you know, I think we'd probably lose a lot of uh, listeners. We saying. probably, well, I mean, it's just a different show. It's, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a different audience. And, and I, w- I would, look, I wouldn't have any problem with, with having both horses in the race, so to speak. Um, the problem is that we couldn't have a, a show where we really delivered ourselves of our, our deepest thoughts in a, in an uncensored way. Um, because I think a quarter or more of the listenership would be people who hate us, who were just looking for quotes to use against us. And I'm just not prepared to put that on tape for them. I think that's probably right. I think that's probably right. Okay. So anyway, enough about us. Uh, let's talk about us. Um, I went and then let's talk about the news. Uh, I want to talk about something that if you are not a fan of the banter, you might be inclined to skip over, but it's actually not banter. It's a preliminary to a, uh, a substantive discussion. And Ed, it's not, I think, what we were planning to talk about, but it is what we're going to talk about. Then we'll talk about the thing that we were planning to talk about, maybe. Okay. Um, I went this week, as Ed, you know, um, to, uh, to visit a place that I've long wanted to go to, and um, it did not disappoint. I was invited to give us speech, I suppose you could say a lecture, but a lecture imply, would imply a sort of that it, the thing had an academic character and it really didn't uh, because I'm not an academic. I was invited to give a speech at Wyoming Catholic College uh, in their lecture series, although my thing was really a speech or a talk or fervorino. Uh, and um, do, do you know much, Ed, about Wyoming Catholic College? Uh, I, I I know... Do you know that there Only, is a Wyoming and a Catholic college? I know there a is a Wyoming college. Catholic college. All I really know about it is the sort of, you know, back of a cigarette packet sales pitch, which is it's a classical themed great books education, but with cowboys. <laughs> I think that's, you're, I think you're mostly right on most of that front. It is, um, it is, I, I think they would be more inclined to say it is a liberal arts themed good books program. Um in the Not West. great books, just good books. Well, there's a whole. Do you know about the whole? Do you know? Uh, do you follow in sort of Catholic education and liberal arts circles the sort of debate about great books and good books? 
No, I, these, I had no these idea. Are loaded I thought terms. Just yeah, these are, no, I didn't know that. No, these are loaded terms. Because instinctively, I, actually, I would think like great books are, you know, the Odyssey, something like that. And good books are like, you know, Tolkien. It's a good book, you know. Oh, you wouldn't, so but couple, you wouldn't put Tolkien in the great book category. No. Okay. Well, I, I, anything I'm, with elves in it is not a great book. It's a good book. I mean, you know, I am reticent to say where Wyoming Catholic College lands in a kind of debate that I'm aware of about great books and good books. But I know that there are some people who there are some people in some circles of sort of liberal arts education, Catholic education, who uh, who are are careful about the term great books because it seems to apply a somewhat it seems to some to imply a somewhat rigid sort of canon and a certain approach to reading that canon. And uh, I'm not just sure where Wyoming Catholic College fits on that. But the idea of Wyoming Catholic College is um, that the curriculum at a, this small Catholic college in Wyoming is a seminar-style kind of class instruction, a la sort of Thomas Aquinas College in terms of methodology or seminar-style. Everyone sits in a, a round and talks about primary te- the sort of primary texts of Western civilization and Christian history and theology and philosophy and that the idea is to sort of get the students engaged in talking with each other and being formed by these texts um, as, uh, as, as not only thinkers, but as one uh, uni- a college administrator said to me to, uh, this week, he really thinks of the college as being a program of human formation with an intellectual component rather than being a program merely of uh, intellectual or academic formation, that the college is aiming to produce... Um, or to form Christians for the Christian life, and part of being formed for the Christian life is being formed for is being formed intellectually for it. As to the cowboys, it's Wyoming, right? So there are cowboys around, um, but the college also has these um, excursions. So every freshman, when they start, and by the way, this isn't a commercial or anything. I'm just I want to talk about some elements of this because I found it interesting. Every um, freshman before they start at the college goes on this 21 day backcountry backpacking excursion, you know, out in the Wind River range of, of Wyoming, which has obviously a tremendous sort of physical formation element in addition to sort of spiritual and academic and human formation components as well. And that seems to sort of set the tone for the thing that the thing is not meant to be a sedentary place, but a place where in many levels, the kids are sort of being formed to engage with the world around them and, the, and, and with real things in a certain way. Okay, that sounds nice. I found it to be quite cool, but there were two things about it that struck me, which I want to talk about. The first is, and I think this might be something you want to talk about too. The first is this notion of of university higher education as being uh, principally human formation, or as being as much human formation as intellectual formation or academic formation, and um, the way in which it seems to me that actually that sort of um, runs through Newman's idea of a university. And probably runs through, um, maybe runs through the sort of college system of your uh, of, of your native England. Um, but for the most part, these days, I think when we think about higher education, Catholic higher education or otherwise, we tend to mostly think about it as academic formation. And I just, while there at Wyoming Catholic College, I was just reflecting on how anemic that can be. Uh, I think that would be very anemic. I don't know that I accept that university education is primarily now an exercise in academic formation. I'm not saying I accept that it should be, but I do think that's how most sort of centers of higher education in America would think about themselves. Well, it might be how they talk about themselves. Hmm. I think 
higher education in this country and in the UK. You mentioned, you know, maybe this is you know, the sort of Wyoming model is closer to the spirit of uh, UK tertiary education. And I don't think that's true. I mean, if you take a sort of extremely sepia-tinted view of the sort of tutorial system in Oxford and Cambridge, maybe, but certainly not. I the, do take an extremely sepia-tinted version of that. Right. Well, that's... <laughs> Um, Evelyn Waugh is neither history nor current. Um, it's just it's just good fiction. Um, but anyway, uh, that was that was certainly not my experience of where I went as an undergraduate. But uh, that's neither here nor there. What I was going to say is I don't think it's fair to say that the university system is primarily um, an exercise in intellectual formation. I think it's primarily an exercise in credentialing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's that's true. That's probably more so. Um, I, 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 I think that's so, and that's so, Ed, even in the sacred sciences, probably. You know, what, what this guy all got me thinking about is the way in which, okay, people who do even, so let's forget about a sort of undergraduate education where human formation seems important. Um, and I think probably a lot of Catholics would agree with that. Even like, a theo- think about contemporary theology programs. If you think about the way in which theology studies in a formal sense, would have begun in scholasticates. You know what I mean? Of uh, monastic scholasticates in which the intellectual formation of reading theological texts and coming to understand them and having a more systematic theological worldview came in the context of having, first of all, in liturgical prayer, and it came in the context of the hours, and I think that's very important, but then came in the context of just a Christian a Christian community such that it would have been, it would have been unthinkable for one to have received a certain kind of theological, just, I mean, it would have been categorically unthinkable for one to have received a certain kind of theological formation absent the Christian community in which it, the sort of modus vivendi, which it, which it requires is, 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 uh, is, is built up. I, I think that's probably right. The council of Trent would not have recognized distance learning. No. Right, exactly. Which is not even a criticism of distance learning as such, because no, I'm just it's saying it's not in the, it would not have been in the historical conception of the the intrinsic link between academic pursuit and communal living, uh, yeah, and communal formation living, by formation, the community, which right. you are. And you know, in our discipline, in our in our academic discipline or intellectual discipline uh, of canon law, our our sort of discipline vivendi is is journalism, of course. But in our academic formation, both of us as canonists, you know, canonists would have been principally trained in kind of apprenticeships, right? I mean, so they're in faculties of canon law, but then in sort of in, in sort of apprenticeships of, of actually doing, in which a person would have been formed not only to know the law, but also in the way of being, in which one can undertake some legal function with sort of epicaea and wisdom and prudence, that, there were, that one hopes there would have been a time with much more formation than merely meeting the sort of academic requirements of the Middle States Conference of Academic credentialing or whatever well i mean also the i i think the necessity for that kind of human formation or at least um endorsement of the formation of the whole person in the granting of the degree is implied by what we call them i mean you know the 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 primary postgrad degree you get in a sacred science study at an ecclesiastical faculty or a pontifical university or something is called a licentiate you are licensed to do something it is endorsement of the person not the status mm-hmm. of their education that you are you know you are considered fit and proper to go out and to teach and to practice the discipline which you have learned and you do so for and with and most often in nomine ecclesia in one way or another and i do think it's a problem that you know we we don't have quite as much attention on that i mean i think it's very ironic we I mean, were canonists and um you know there is i mean they've, they've kind of moved to bring one in at the level of the holy see 
one of the, I mean, it was kind of there before, but it was more, um, it was better explained and sort of more entrenched in the law of um, Predicati Evangelium, the the new constitution for the Roman Curia promulgated last year, uh, that they have a sort of fit and pro- proper persons register for canonists who can practice at the level of the Roman Curia, um, overseen by the Secretary of State, which I, I don't know that I'd say that's the right department to have people deciding who's a fit right. and proper person to right. exercise um, an office, <laughs> but that, that, that's a quibble. Um, but we don't have that at, at the level of, for example, a, a canon law school. Um, we don't have it at the level of um, sort of international or national practice. You can have, you know, individual dioceses, the diocesan bishop, or I suppose the JV could, you know, can effectively disbar a canon. Someone from, from local practice, from practice yeah. in their area. But, we don't have anything akin to, um, say, a bar association, which can say this person is not a fit and proper person to practice. Which is actually law. a peer-reviewed assessment. The bar association is, mm. is 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 in truth a peer-reviewed assessment of the person's sort of personal suitability for the practice of the law. And you know, maybe you think, okay, but there are a lot of scummy lawyers out there, sure. But the idea that um, there are certain ethical requirements and 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 minimal professional competencies that are required by one's peers in order to practice the thing, it is not true in our in our legal system or in the practice of the discipline of canon law in the life of the church. No, um, nor is it true in theology or. No. I mean, philosophy to the extent that anything is certain in philosophy, but or liturgy, uh, the practice of sort of you know people who work. Oh, as we know liturgists. there's a lot of bad liturgy. Around, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, here's here's I guess what I wonder because if I you put a fit and proper persons test on liturgical practice, JD, that could <laughs> absolutely I don't decimate. Pra- I don't mean the practice of offering country. liturgies. I mean the practice of being a kind of liturgist who plans and coordinates diocesan liturgies or cathedral liturgies or whatever. But here here would be my question. It, it, I don't want to sort of look. The worst thing to do, I think when you think about, okay, once it was like this and now it's not like that, the worst thing to do is to say just how can we go back there, right? The, the Because it's usually not practical that we can go back there and also it ignores the good things that we have. So uh, as I say, I don't want to sort of throw out the notion of distance education as a means of academic or intellectual formation, but what can, so I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like pop, pop, like proper solutions, which just say, well, we should go back to the idea that the only place where a person learns theology is in a very cohesive residential community of Christian living because, but knowing that that's probably not the thing. And there are good reasons for that. One, it just meant that theological formation was limited to a very, very small number of people and would be necessarily, what can we do? Do you think to sort of better, integrate the church's approach to her own intellectual formation in, in, in ecclesiastical faculties of theology or canon law or the other sacred sciences, such that one is there's an approach in which one is being formed both for a discipline and as a person, and as the kind of person who practices that discipline. So one can say, canonists don't do that, or theologians don't approach it that way, or something like that. You know, so that there's a kind of cultural jigging in which one is shaped in a particular way. I don't know that something needs to change in terms of how you do that. The the distance programs, for example, you, you raise that as one sort of aspect of modern academia that, you know, is very novel. Um, I, I don't know that there needs to be a rejigging. I think even places that do tend to use or even lean quite heavily on distance learning often are quite good at finding ways of ensuring uh, some sort of community aspect to study, even if it is at a distance. I, you know, we have the technology to do it now um i i taught 
at the graduate level. I taught canon law at the graduate level for a number of years at a at a Catholic college whose name I won't say because they didn't renew my contract. Um, <laughs> but the the students that I had every year, uh, I think there was a very good sense of community amongst them, and I made a point of you know having virtual office hours and having sort of you know. A Friday night beer if people wanted to so you can in groups of you know five or six or whatever you could actually have real conversations of a sort of seminar style or whatever um, I, I think all that's there I think if I were going to suggest or propose a change it wouldn't be to try and you know prescribe how it is you should go about fostering human contact and uh, you know encouraging study as a as a as a shared endeavor um i i think i would simply say it should be valued more and it should be assessed that if you're dealing with a sacred science uh you you should have um and the faculty should be you know when they're considering who who how to award the degree i think it would be i, I don't think improper to suggest that the conferral of a license to teach and practice a sacred discipline in the you know in the church should come with an explicit evaluation of whether this person is a fit and proper person to do so in the church, um, to not have the only assessment be academic and intellectual, uh, at least, you know, in the sort of final reckoning. I, I don't think that's, you know, unreasonable. We, you know, I, I don't think anyone would, would hold or accept that you should have someone who's, uh, I don't know, a notorious criminal, um, practicing canon law i did that you know you wouldn't if you were if you're a convicted fraudster you wouldn't be admitted to the bar to the state bar in new york why why should you expect to be able to practice in but um diocesan life but but there's some there's something in between uh, there's there are other sort of fitness tests than simply are you a notorious criminal or are you an apostate right uh sure yeah i, I mean that's a that's a baseline floor i guess but yes i yes i could i i think there should be some sort of Human, I mean, we have all kinds of human assessment involved uh, when people are in formation for religious life or, or for ordination. Um, it doesn't seem alien to the mind of the church that people are going to fulfill important roles in the life of the church, be assessed in the totality of their humanity and not just purely on, do they can they pass the exam? No, it doesn't. You know, it's not a driving test. It's, you know, there's a little bit more needed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm... Now, I'm flying by the seat of my trousers here, J.D., because I didn't know we were going to talk about this. So I... No, I know, but I know it's an area of interest for you, and I was just struck. I was struck at this college by the commitment to human formation, which I think does exist among any number of Catholic colleges. Um, you know, there's a utilitarian mo- mode of education, which thinks about education as a means for career preparation. And generally speaking, the church tends to askew that when it comes to the way that she talks about Catholic parochial schools or Catholic universities. And this place, which I visited, seemed to embody like a really sort of very clear um, sense that it was doing much, much more than or a very different thing than sort of technical career preparation. But I found that ironic because I think it is often the case in the church's own formation like in the church's own faculties, the, the 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 ecclesiastical faculties of sacred sciences, there can be, uh, and I'm not I, I, I'm not criticizing any particular faculty of, of sacred sciences here, but I do think that in the church's own um, faculties of the sacred sciences, there can be a sort of career preparation modality or um, an aversion to doing the kind of assessment of human formation or the kind of um, intentional human formation that the church seems to say in her approach to education at various other levels is is an important part of 
of, of any kind of school endeavor. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I think it's reasonable. You know, so if you go, if you go to the North American College, and um, we're not going to the North American College because it's a seminary in Rome. I mean, we'll go if we're invited, but we're not going to be students. Yeah, I mean, if you North want to invite American us, College. we'll go. It's, I, it's too late for us to be seminarians at the North American College for any number of reasons. One of which is that we're, by some strange circumstances, strange series of events in my life, I'd have become an applicant to seminary despite the fact that I have a wife and two children, were some strange circumstance of events to unfold by which I might be applying to seminary, I still wouldn't have a sufficient number of Robbies and Cufflinks, I think, to be admitted at the North American College. That's Um, not fair. That's not charitable. (laughs) No. They give you the Cufflinks when you you arrive. They don't presume. Yeah, and they don't, in fact, they don't even want you to They engage in the formation of the whole human person, JD. They'll teach you how to dress and, you know, what salad fork to use and that sort of thing. They don't want you to bring your own cufflinks with you, probably, lest they not be right. But the point is, um, you know, the North American College is an interesting place because um, if it's just, it's the American Seminary in Rome, and it's sort of modeled on this approach whereby human formation, spiritual formation, pastoral formation happens there, and then intellectual formation happens elsewhere at the Pontifical Gregorian Academy or the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas or the Pontifical University Santa Croce or whatever the the latter and whatever you know so you do you do your intellectual formation at those places but though and that's that means that if you go to the north american college you get a full and complete kind of formation which involves all those things but if you're um a lay student or a religious or really any other kind of student at the at the at the graduate programs of those pontifical universities the those human formation elements simply don't exist at all for you you know if you're not in, enrolled in a kind the kind of seminary where they take place and I guess it seem would seem to me in a certain way like for the sake of the persons being formed to do particular kinds of work in the life of the church and for the good of the church, more human formation in the church's own sort of graduate formation of the sacred sciences would be a good thing. I, I take your point. But again, I, I don't think that it's entirely lacking now. Um, when I went to study canon law. And maybe um, it's changed, yeah. As a, as a graduate student um, arriving in my late 20s with a wife, I, I had a real experience of community amongst my class. That I did too. The, yeah. the people I went to school with formed me. That they, yeah. they, they changed me. They changed, um, uh, they changed my way of thinking about things. They certainly changed my way of talking. After 10 years in British politics, my, um, my, the, my way of addressing people and um, some of the adjectives and adverbs I was prone to using uh, had to go uh, because I found that they scandalized the, ah. my clerical classmates and occasionally my professors too. Um, so it, you know, it did. It formed me in a human way that, you know, I, it, you know, it kind of re-civilized me um, after my previous career, and and I think that was very much to the good. And I, you know, I I don't want to. I don't think we should we should suggest or hold out that this kind of human formation doesn't happen currently and organically and well i for me i i think we should simply acknowledge where it is where it is happening and taking place and value it more to say that this isn't a sort of ooh unintended bonus this you know this should be part this should be intentional it should be recognized as something that we want mm. to happen and we want to see happen and we want to be able to assess that it has happened. And I think yeah, that's, that's, that's a great good. point. That's a great point that maybe in the professional formation, in, in the formation of professionals for the sacred sciences, more more assessment along the lines of the kind of assessment which seminarians undergo of how is the human formation doing its thing might be of tremendous value. 
Yeah, I mean, um, the the dean of the school of canon law, may he rest in peace. Uh, you know, I think was was somewhat bemused and charmed by my demeanor when I arrived, and but I think he would not have said I was at that moment ready to go out into canonical practice. Right. Not just but if he didn't think you were at the end, I wonder if he would have felt empowered to, or if there would have even been a mechanism for him to do anything about that. If you passed your comps and written your thesis, but you weren't yet a canonist, I wonder if there, there, I wonder if there ought to be a mechanism for, it's rife with all kinds of other problems, justice and due process and things like that. But if you weren't yet a canonist for some other reason, I, I wonder if there ought to be a mechanism to sort of assess that. Uh, I don't think there is a mechanism or any mechanism no, for, for assessing that currently, but I, I do think there should be. I think there should be some kind of, you know, there should at least be the the ability for intellectual and academic formators to register a concern. Um, and maybe that is the role of professional societies. Maybe things like the Canon Law Society or whatever would be the right place for that. I don't know that I would want the CLSA <laughs> to have that kind of... My experience of CLSA, <laughs> uh, you know, conferences and I, I don't want that to become a professional vetting organization. Yeah, no, I hear you. All I'm saying is, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. All I'm saying is, I was impressed by the commitment to the sort of what we might call the four pillars of formation at this Catholic college, and I, I think that the church in any kind of school endeavor only benefits from the same kind of commitment to the four pillars of formation that a seminary is committed to and that other, you know, you know that uh, uh, that places like this, which I saw are committed to as well. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I agree with that. We got to take a break. Okay. This week's episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Decided Excellence Catholic Media, a print media company that specializes in community and parish magazines. Ed, you know, there are parishes all over this country which have partnered with Decided Excellence Catholic Media to publish their own parish magazines. Parishioners, I'm told, love them. The magazine communicates the good work of the parish, strengthens community, and has even brought parishioners back to Mass. So, Edward, what does a parish magazine offer that a bulletin or social media presence does not? Well, a mail magazine can reach 100% of registered parishioners, not just those who attend Mass. You're not waiting for people to pick up a bulletin at the end of one liturgy or another, you can actually go straight to their homes. Um, you can also manage to push it out to people who follow you on social media, but you're not bound by, you know, sort of character limit of a certain number of letters in a tweet or anything like that. And you can also target a print publication, a physical media to all the people who live within the territory of a parish. You don't have to limit yourself just to those who've signed up or, you know, are there, are there present. It can be a tool of evangelization in that way. And it's, you know, it stops you getting lost in a social media algorithm and it stops you having to, you know, rely on someone to deliberately pick up what you're laying down. Here's how it works. Each magazine features a family from the parish, and it can also highlight parish ministries. The parish can produce its own evangelization and catechesis content, and it can supplement from the extensive Decided Excellence Catholic Library with articles from Bishop Barron, Scott Hahn, Relevant Radio, and many more. The editorial and design teams at Decided Excellence will guide you through the publication process each month, and they'll help to ensure that your content is professional and attractive. The Decided Excellence production team will train a parish representative to organize content, which is then sent to a staff of professional designers and editors. The production team ensures that the magazine is both beautiful and high in quality. So if you want to find out more about Decided Excellence and how it can help you and your parish team, you can visit decidedexcellence.com slash parish to learn more. That's decidedexcellence.com slash parish. 
talk to your priest. Decided excellent Catholic media. Oh, sorry. I thought you were done. No, no. We're definitely done now. Decided excellence, Catholic media, a magazine for your parish. And then you go, yeah. I'm not going to go, yeah. No, you do that. Decidedexcellence.com slash parents. (laughs) Parish people. That's decidedexcellence.com slash parish. Decided excellence. Hey, everybody. We are back with a decidedly excellent conversation. Uh, And uh, thank you for being with us. Um, (laughs) And Father, in the news, let's talk about the church in the news. Father Hans Zollner, SJ, formerly uh, a member of the Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors and the director of a safeguarding institute at the Pontifical Gregorian University, uh, said in an interview just today, we're recording this on Thursday, actually said in an interview which which was published uh, yesterday with with the members of Awake Milwaukee, which is a kind of... um, uh, reform um, advocacy organization in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee said that uh, he does not know um, what it means in the church's law, penal law regarding um, uh, clerical abuse and misconduct, what it is to be a vulnerable adult. They were asked about what it is to be a vulnerable person. And Father Zollner says, listen, abuse against adult persons should, and now I'm reading from him, should be seen and reported as such. And it is evidence that there are many victims of sexual, psychological, and emotional abuse inside church settings. My question, however, is this. If the definition is as broad as it is now, including basically every human being, as all of us may find ourselves occasionally in, quote, states of affirmity that can, quote, limit our ability to resist the offense, at least to some degree, then do we really need any such term? Would it not be enough, as somebody wrote to me after the on, after an online meeting of Wake Milwaukee, to state that any type of abuse against victims of any age, zero to 100, are crimes. What do you think? Um, well, so a couple of points we made here. First of all, I your your sort of original summing up of uh, Father Zollner's response to this question, uh, which which goes on at some length. Uh, yeah. I, I, and you characterize it as saying he doesn't know exactly what a vulnerable adult is under the church's current law, I would say he's entirely right. And if he'd claimed he did know what a vulnerable adult was under the church's current law, I would have, my my metaphorical hand would have shot up and I would have had a couple of follow-up questions to ask because I don't think it's possible for anyone to know what a vulnerable adult is under the church's current law because as we have discussed and reported uh, in the past and indeed extensively in the last sort of month or six weeks or so, the law is extremely contradictory in different places over what constitutes a, a vulnerable adult or a vulnerable person. Um, in some places, uh, the equivalency between a so-called vulnerable adult and a minor, or in some places, an infant, uh, is is laid out and it's uh, expressly rejected in other parts of the law. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of there's there's no legal clarity on this point whatsoever. But I take his point about saying if we are basically describing a vulnerable person or vulnerable adult um, in such a broad category that it could apply to virtually anyone at some point. Why do we need to try and define the category? And I, and I actually, I would agree with him. I think having, um, I, I think the, the CDF's operative, sorry, the DDF's operative definition of a vulnerable adult as it pertains to reserve delicts that are those those crimes of abuse that are so heinous they are reserved to the trial and judgment of the apostolic see uh, is is useful those who are equivalent in law to minors is is how this and by that they mean someone with basically severe de- a severe developmental disability or something um, I think that's a useful category to have in law but for everyone else I agree with father Zollner I think trying to say well no we're going to define the person 
uh, in law is is results in definition so broad it is as he says effectively a dead letter it's far better to have a law that describes the circumstances that describes the situation and that what becomes you, a lot more flexible what do you think is the sort of um, legislative history of this notion of a vulnerable adult so it seems to me that we did have a kind of, uh, we had before 2018, let's say, the category of persons, as you say, who would be defined as being effectively non-sui compass people who are chronologically adults, but who have, um, you know, limited intellectual capacity or something like that. Um, but subsequent to that, it, it seems to me that we created very quickly in Vosesti, the church created very quickly in Vosesti Lex Mundi, um, this notion of a vulnerable adult because it wanted to account for circumstances which it had not previously regarded as um, regarded as abusive, like uh, circumstances which the law had not previously created categories for. So the, 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 the circumstance of uh, seminarians who were abused, um, who were coerced or manipulated by, by bishops or vocation directors or whatever, or the situation of a woman who would be in a relationship of spiritual direction and would be manipulated— and it, I think it seemed to me that the law wanted to do everything it could, or the church wanted to do everything it could to, to say, look, we're going to have a mechanism for prosecuting those things. Um, and so it kind of broadened, created this very broad sense of, of abusive adults, but, or excuse me, of vulnerable adults to sort of say, look, it's, it's, this is just as serious as anything else. But I do wonder, um, Ed, couldn't the same thing have been accomplished by broadening something which got a little bit of attention in Vos Estes Lex Mundi and not, but namely broadening the notion of abuse to include relationships which in some way capitalized on or were built upon a relationship of hierarchical responsibility or supervision or a relationship of spiritual authority or direction. Yes, and I, I think we've mentioned this before and I suggested that you know it would be far better if the law, in this case Vosastis, spoke about relationships of spiritual affinity, which the Eastern yeah. Code has. Um, and I think that would be better. But the real problem with this is, again, you're the the problem with Vosestes and the problem with all of these laws that seek to define categories of vulnerable adult or define a person as vulnerable um, suffer from the same deficiency, which is that you're trying to criminalize effectively the person instead of the act. And this is, in my opinion, the great mistake of the universal reform of the Code of Canon Law leading to the promulgation of the 1983 Code and its decision to strip away many of the penal norms of the 1917 Code, is it basically decriminalized clerical sex. And this is the problem. And this is what they have been trying to address and doing so, I would argue, extremely cack-handedly, or at least with one hand tied behind their back, which is what they actually want to do is say, well, clerics shouldn't be having sex. And so when they're having sex, which is always sinful... We should also have a category of sex, which is also criminal, but some, you know, where the line is between when it gets quite bad or questionable and becomes seriously bad and very questionable or outright, just outrageously criminal, that's harder to, and the problem is it lacks a basic legal floor. If you just said clerics are religious who have taken either, made either promises of celibacy or um, vows of chastity, uh, it is a, it is a canonical delict for them to violate said promise or vow, then you have a basic judicial floor that you can build off of with exacerbating circumstances or mitigating or factors. Mitigating yeah, right. And yeah. so then you begin to define the situation. You begin to define the act in law rather than trying to define this person, this sort of unicorn of a person who is vulnerable in a particular and unique way. And no law can encompass the specifics of every single situation, especially if it's an abusive situation, which is always going to be somewhat unique, even if there are 
overarching patterns of behavior. And I mean, I think this is the real problem. I, it's not possible to come up with a legal category of a vulnerable person at once so broad as to encompass every um, possible situation and at the same time specific enough to be legally actionable with penal law that has to be, as you love to remind everyone, interpreted and applied strictly. But you, you can't define the person in law. You have to define the act in law. And it's much easier to define the act. Yeah. Which we do in, in which we do with, which the church's law does with regard to certain, again, you make this point, a person who obligate, violates his obligation of a, of a continence or his vow of chastity, um, you know, commits a sin. And some of those sins are crimes in our law. And some of them are specifically delineated active action crimes, right? Like concubinage, concubinage, clerical concubinage, which is um, a, a stable, a stable sexual relationship with a woman. That's the legal definition of concubinage is indeed an action which is criminalized. It doesn't matter who, who the woman is. Um, it matters that she's a woman and a cleric has a stable sexual relationship with her and thus he's committed a crime. And and I see your point. The vulnerable person sort of, the whole of the vulnerable person's category seems like, yeah, it's trying to just, again, hold up some, some all sex sins are sins, which I know is a tautology, but that's the point. All sex sins are sins and some sex sins are crimes. But rather than sort of, broadening that to say um, all sex sins for clerics are for sins and there are sort of broad categories of sexual activity which is criminal for clerics and then we'll we'll sort of lessen or, or or strengthen that based upon the circumstances the church does sort of want to hold out this notion it seems to me sexual activity of a cleric between consenting adults is sinful but not criminal but we're ever broadening the notion of a non-consenting adult Right, and it I mean, does seem but, like that. And again, what we're trying to do with this, this, these laws, because it isn't just Vosestes, it's the new book six, it's yeah. Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela, it's the you know changes that have been made to the Eastern Code, all this stuff is, it, the law is trying because the 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 mind of the legislator from the seventies on up, you know, so this isn't a question of Pope Francis. This has been the guiding principle of canonical reform all through the post conciliar period including under JP2, including under Benedict XVI, Paul VI, all of them, you know, that was that they're the ones who, you know, pushed the new code through and, you know, presided over the first decades of its of its coming into force. Um, the move has been to find the victim, not the crime. And that's just stupid. Yeah. And then you have to, because of that, then you have to do other things like now the church has the CDF has has legislated, and she keeps having to tweak the legislation with regard to the possession of um, child pornography for clerics, and the circumstances under which a cleric might have to might come into possession of child pornography. I mean, the, the law has had to be tweaked there in any number of circumstances. Where, in fact, I think arguably, um, a prohibition against the possession of pornography. Period, with mitigating and and um, with mitigating exacerbating circumstances factors. and exacerbating factors would be a much it, it just we're just talking here about a cleaner way to write law and a cleaner way to apply law yeah and that's what did the person that's do what it law did they possess, to be. right did the person possess pornography one yes or no are there any factors which mitigate their culpability for that yes or no are there any factors which exacerbate their culpability or the gravity of the act because and then of you that? can begin yes to no. argue the right. usual canonical penal categories right. of dolus yeah. and um yeah. culpability 
You yeah. know, was there malice in the intention and acquisition or was it negligence? Is it culpable negligence? Is it crass yeah. and supine negligence? Is it yeah. reasonable? You know, was this, you know, you got a phishing email and you clicked a bad link and you didn't know what was going on before you knew it. Your computer was infected with all kinds of crap. You know, you can have all of that, but you have to start from a, a stable legal floor. And we don't right. have that. We don't have that. And, and I find myself wondering Okay, with Father Zollner, who was on the Pontifical Council for the Protection of Minors and resigned rather publicly last, was it last month? Yes, last month. Last month, yeah, resigned rather no, publicly last month. it was March. Last... It, didn't he, didn't, I mean, I think it was, we, we found out about it in April, but didn't he, didn't he officially, wasn't the date on it in March? Whose resignation was made rather public, rather publicly last month. And um, so we'll just, we'll just uh, skirt right around Thread the there. needle that way. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, whose resignation was made public rather, uh, rather dramatically last month. And, uh, and and who remains the director of a safeguarding institute at the, at the Gregorian, but who is regarded as a significant figure in the church's, in the conversation in the church about safeguarding and addressing issues of clerical abuse. Isn't and, he some and, sort and of public the, safeguarding ref- referee? Oh, yeah. He's, he Vatican sort of City? has the... No, for the Diocese of Rome, he's he has ah. a, some some office pertaining to this Diocese of Rome. So anyway, with Father Zollner, among many others, saying he doesn't know this. And at the same time, with... Archbishop Shakluna telling bishops that they have a responsibility broadly to prosecute various kinds of vulnerable adult sexual crimes Mm -hmm. involving clerics in their diocese. You have right now, it seems to me, on this issue of what is a vulnerable adult and how do they factor into law, an unsustainable reality where many people who are the people who are supposed to be offering clarity on what the term means say, we don't know what the term means and it's, that's a problem. And then, and then, and then from the CDF saying, well, whatever that conversation is, you have to be prosecuting these cases, Bishop, so you have a responsibility to and do you something. you're going to be on the hook under Vosestis for negligence. If you don't, you're going to be on the hook under Vosestis, so you have a responsibility to do something. But it's difficult for you to know what that something is because of the fact that the no- this notion is ambiguous. Is it... <laughs> It does not seem to me that this is sustainable. And in ecclesiastical legal reform, we know well that, you know, not sustainable means it will take a couple of years to be addressed, but it does not seem to me that this is sustainable. And I wonder if, you know, (laughs) in a certain way, you hate to see the law keep changing and changing and changing um, as it has over on these issues in recent years. But I wonder if at a certain point, the CDF themselves or the Pontifical Council for Legislative Text will recommend a paradigm shift with regard to the way in which the church has been writing law about clerical abuse and misconduct over the past few years. Um, all right. I have I have some thoughts, but I'll answer your que- your presumably rhetorical question first. Uh, no, the CDF or the DDF won't and shouldn't because the CDF stroke DDF's law is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela. It works great. It's it's a nice yeah, law. Yeah, what I mean has, is the CDF has some confidence with... Re- in, oh, no, they don't have any confidence in Vosestis. That's Never mind. my point, is vulnerable adults who don't conform to the CDF... Sorry, the DDF's own in-law definition of a vulnerable adult as one who is legally equivalent to a minor, um, that's not their problem. It's not their pigeon. It goes to the dicastery for clergy. It goes to the dicastery for bishops. It's somebody else's problem. Uh, so, no, they won't. You could see the dicastery for clergy make a bid for for some sort of change although i don't expect that to happen you look at the things that that dicastery has had to try and you look you called for a paradigm shift or said they should call for a paradigm shift or would they call for a paradigm shift the the dicastery for clergy has been fighting a valiant war to encourage a paradigm shift in seminary formation for the last 10 years 
and they have been beating their head against a brick wall in many cases. So I think the chances that they are going to try and push for a wholesale change in how um, you handle sexual abuse cases with vulnerable adults is unlikely. I would suggest this, though, for people who work in diocesan practice and uh, esteemed colleagues, hello, and even for our Episcopal listeners, of whom I know there are occasionally a few, I, I would offer um, a hypothetical to consider and then a possible solution, which is this. If you think that um, Archbishop Shakluna's rather important imperative reminder to the bishops in November, not last year, but the year before, um, that they really are on the hook for prosecuting issues of clerical misconduct and abuse with vulnerable adults. If, if you think that that's not a pressing concern, I invite you to consider effectively the case of Father Marco Rupnik, because that is an issue of, at its core, vulnerable adults, a cleric with vulnerable adults, and how vulnerable they were and how that was made known and how that was handled. That has created a firestorm, which is by no means gone away. And okay, it's captured a little bit more attention because he was a Jesuit, is a Jesuit, and uh, frequently resident in Rome and everything. But imagine if Rupnik happened in your backyard. Do you really want that mess? No. And so how do you deal with it under the current norms? Accepting everything we've just said about the law in Vosestes is unhelpfully unclear to the point of unusable. I have a sympathy. We talked about how um, the 1917 code had various systematic delicts for clerical sexual misconduct um, that constitute crimes of varying degrees that could be prosecuted with a with a sliding scale according to their gravity and the circumstances. Just criminalize the sex. Yeah, you have I'm proud the to power. Say there's a diocese I'm aware of which is doing that, and I, it's a very good thing, and I suspect its bishop would be glad to talk with other bishops about that. But yeah, I think... Hmm. I would have a great deal of empathy for a bishop who is negligent in the administration of his duties with regard to penalizing criminal cases pertaining to clerics and vulnerable adults in the manner that Archbishop Shakluna says that they're responsible for criminalizing them. But at the same time that I would have empathy about it, please let me be clear, I would cover it <laughs> because it would point to, a, uh, would point to I think, a very important, unresolved legal situation in the life of the church right now, which is that bishops have a set of responsibilities that it is very difficult for them to understand. And as a consequence of that, there will be cases which demand justice, which will not get it. Because the concern is that bishops who don't under, who, who heard Shakluna say the thing, but say, I don't, I really don't know what that means. And I don't know how to address it. And I have this, there's this whole sort of doubt about it. And I don't know what a vulnerable adult is. And I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. The concern is that bishops will continue to do things in the way they've always done them. And if there's one thing that should be clear, it's that the DDF and Vosestis are saying, Hey, don't do continue to do things in the way that you've always done them with regard to the cler the sexual misconduct of clerics involved in adults. But I think there may well be bishops who simply choose to because they've thrown their hands up in the air, and that means that there will be people who won't get the kind of procedural justice which the law says they ought to get. Yeah, well, that, again, that can break badly for all concerned, and. And I mean, to be clear, when I say, oh, just criminalize the sex, I'm not being crazy and hot-headed and suggesting something silly. This is what Pope Francis has called for. Yeah. If you read his preamble to the promulgation of the new book, Six of the Code, which is the yeah. Church's Universal Penal Code, he's very clear. Bishops need to take seriously their role as legislators. 
in their diocese that the Pope has called for, the original 1983 code called for and expected, and in fact was written with the expectation of particular penal law in diocese. The church expects Pope Francis supports and has called for active legislation on penal matters by diocesan bishops. It's there to do. And again, you you say that there are going to be a lot of bishops who listen to um, Archbishop Shkalunas talk in Baltimore and will have heard the him say that they're obligated to, to prosecute the stuff, but they don't understand how they're supposed to do it. If you are confused, clarify it for yourself. Say, in my diocese, this in Vosestes will be interpreted this way. And it will mean, if you for want, example, send the whole thing to the PCLT and say... Does this Did work? I get it right? Am I doing anything wrong here? I, and like I say, I, I think the reason why we bring this up is I know, as I say, one diocese which is undertaking this kind of particular law reform as called for by Pope Francis in the promulgation of the New Book 6 and as called for in other places as well. And there may well be other dioceses, but I tend to pay attention to this stuff. And so there are a lot of bishops. I mean, we're in a situation effectively where a, a, a responsibility which has been imposed on bishops on each individual bishop, I suspect, is has not been appreciated or integrated or understood by most. And so even if you don't create that particular law, I would just suggest that the next time, Excellencies, that you have a situation pertaining to clerical mis- sexual misconduct, if there's any possibility to involve someone who might fit into this very broad category of vulnerable adult, which, as Father Zollner says, is a lot of people, you at least make a call to a canonist and ask, is this the kind of thing that Archbishop Shakluna is talking about? And if so, what do we have to do? And your diocesan canonist may at first say, oh no, I don't really know what that was about, but we should just do it the way we've always done it. Make another call to another canonist and say, is this the kind of thing that Archbishop Shakluna was talking about? Because there will need inevitably to be legal reform on these points. The very fact that we're talking about them in this way points to that. But in the meantime, You'd hate to see someone deny justice and you'd hate to see bishops sort of face of Ossessi's investigation because of these ambiguities which are raised. Yes. Or because they ca- they prompt someone to just throw his hands up. Yes. Okay. So since we're talking about governance in the life of the church, Ed, should we talk about governance in um, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and all of the other realms of the Commonwealth? Are you doing anything to mark the coronation tomorrow? Today is Thursday. I, uh... Easy. I've been writing my newsletter this evening, so I, I already in my head I've switched gears to writing in the Friday tense. Um, you want to know if I'm doing anything to mark the coronation of King Charles the Third of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland? Peace be upon him, and and all his territories and dependencies, and all his territories and around the world, yes. and empty and all his and empty detestable enormities. Yes, yeah. Are you? I mean, we are. We're having a party, but you are English. Well, it would I have, make no I, sense for no, me. No, I'm have not a English. I, I am British. I have a British passport. That can be said. I'm not English. My wife is English, but I am not English. You wreck it like Wrexham, my friend. Uh you know, I actually have strong views about the welcome to Wrexham thing, but we're not going to talk about. That I do want to talk about this. Just everybody wants to know your strong, cantankerous, curmudgeonly views about the little the little Welsh team that could. All you right. know what Welcome um, to Wrexham is? It's a TV show in which um, uh, the dude from Atelier Sunny in Philadelphia and the dude from um, Van Wilder buy a um, soccer team together. Okay, uh, you want? You I want don't my... feel like Van Wilder gets enough credit as wasn't wasn't that Ryan Reynolds' best thing? Yeah, I, well, I, to me, he's the guy from Two Guys a Girl in a Pizza Place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
That he'll right. always be that to me. But I mean, he's mm-hmm. done well for himself. He's a good boy. Um, he's he's made good. Good for him. Um, but you want to know what I think of Welcome to Rexham? Fine, I'll tell you. Uh, I love it. And you yeah. know the I I so uh, we've opened this can, so you're going to get the whole thing now. When I was um, back in London for a month earlier this year, I was in my 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 former local pub quite a bit, and it was FA Cup season there were a lot of cup ties on and Wrexham were playing Wrexham were playing Sheffield United who play several leagues above Wrexham and they fought them to a standstill and forced a replay and then they went down um, in an absolute nail bite in the second I was cheering for them the whole way I think it's great I think it's a Cinderella story I think yeah it's is it grating to ever hear an American speak about British football um yes I mean it's just it doesn't sound right um, it's, it's like listening to, and I, and I used to complain about this when I lived in the UK, it's like trying to listen to someone with a Cockney accent talk about ice hockey. It's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, but no, I think they, they've done great work with the club. I, everyone loves an underdog story. I, and I, I would, I would argue with people in the pub who were saying, oh, you know, you can't, you know, these Americans coming in and buying success. And I was like, you know what? No, leave these guys alone. You know what? They're, 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 they're putting their own money in and and good for them. And I think it's great. That said, I noticed that they were playing a friendly um, this summer. Apparently they're going to play a friendly against Man U and it's organized somewhere on the West Coast. I'm just going to assume LA. And I saw a bunch of people like getting angry about this because the tickets cost like 300 bucks or something and say, oh, this is not fair. You know, you're pricing, you know, ordinary Wrexham fans out of seeing their, you know, seeing their team play. It's like, listen, there are no ordinary Wrexham fans living in California. All right. If you are a Wrexham FC, a Wrexham AFC fan living in California and you've come to follow the club through the, 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 you know, reality TV show and you, you watch them on the internet. Yeah. It, good for you, but you need to know your place. You're not Welsh. You're not from Wrexham. <laughs> Your job is to pay. Your job is to be a source of cash so that the club can continue promotion. Know your place, okay? That's how it is. If you if you want to, you know, if you were if you were a member of the supporters trust back in the day before it got sold, then you've got legitimate right. But otherwise, pay up because that's what you're there for. All right, Ed, you're so English enough my- to tell every American to know his place. So uh, I, I don't not look. I have I I am a shareholder in a in a minor in a minor league football team in the UK. I'm a member of a supporters trust that owns um, a a League Two team, and I have been what for team? many years. AFC Wimbledon. Oh yeah, they do. They play at Wimbledon. They do. They they play back at Plough Lane. I mean, the story of AFC Wimbledon. You know, that is that was Venus's best. Uh, that's Venus's best stadium. You know that. Venus is a Venus is a is a Wimbledon maven. They're far oh, you're talking about tennis. You're talking about tennis. Yeah, the, I think um, I think Wimbledon is the only place where Venus has a better, a significantly better record than Serena. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure. I she likes uh, the grass. You know, it's the best surface, I guess. I um, but no, there's. I mean, there's an interesting thing where the original Wimbledon FC, as opposed to the current AFC Wimbledon, um, it was it went through bankruptcy and they tried to move the team to a different city and change the name, and it triggered a whole court case, and people got very very upset about it. And said this is the beginning of sort of American franchise. Uh, team ownership yeah, like in the, the UK, like the Rockets moving to, yeah, people um, did not like yeah, it, and yeah. it basically got a one-off dispensation. And the supporters banded huh. together and founded their own team, and they played in you know Sunday leagues and communities, and got promoted all the way up the ladder back into the football league, just like Wrexham are doing. What does AFC stand for? Um, it's, it, the FC and AFC awesome. are no, but, um, um, it's FC association football, football club. club. Association it's, football club. Well, because but there's the two kinds of football. Is technically called association football. There's 
rugby association football association and rugby football. Or actually, it's rugby. not properly speaking, it's not rugby football. It should be called union football. <sighs> okay. Anyway, then you have I'm not league. Play- then you have rugby league as well as I rugby might, union. I might watch the thing if it's on. Like, uh, if what time is the special thing? The coronation? Oh, it'll be insanely early for you. You're going to get in highlights later at best. I mean, it's six in the morning for me on the East Coast. Oh, so I'd have to get it. But I mean, how, how long is it? Oh, it'll be it'll be it'll be a good few hours. I mean, this is not. I mean, actually, no. They tried to slim it down, so I'm going to say probably. They're, I think they're going to try for a tight ninety minutes, and they'll probably end up at two hours. But are they really going to start it at four in the morning for me, or is that just when people start walking in? Because I imagine a big part of it it's like the Mechala seeing the hats and everything like that. Well, the yeah, that's the walking in is the best part, man. Yeah. Now, is Prince Harry going to wear his uniform? I don't know. I don't know what he's going to wear. I don't know where he's going to sit. I I hope it's sackcloth and ashes, and I hope it's somewhere near the door. Okay. Well, anyway, do you want to play a game? Sure, let's play a game. I got a game for you. Okay. You want to play? I've been playing a game for the past 15 minutes, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, I have Go a little... Wind I have a little, you up. I, d- I don't feel wound up. I didn't expect to be asked my views on Wrexham, but I mean, okay. Um. Anyway, okay, do you want to play a game of coordination, yes or no? Yes. Great. Uh, okay. Just 10 quick yes or no's, and yeah, we're, we're about on time, so yeah, 10 quick yes or no's. Um, JD, head of state as distinct from head of government? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hereditary succession? For bishops? In general, just the principle of hereditary succession. Yes, but not for bishops. Okay. King Kong? No. No? It's no. classic? Interesting. No. Okay. There's nothing about uh, King Kong that excites me. Fair enough. Liturgical installation of the secular power. Okay, liturgical installation of a secular... <laughs> this is where I'm going to frustrate our Anglican listeners. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to say no. Okay. Well, no, I mean, I don't have an objection to a confessional state. I suppose if the president of Ireland were invested in a mass... Or Catholic. I object to that. What's that? I don't. I don't know about anything about that. But I suppose if the president of Ireland were invested in mass, I wouldn't have objection to that. But obviously, you probably can't have that in the United States. But like, if I, I have no objection to various kinds of commissionings in the context of a mass, like when we'd launched the pillar, if we'd sort of been commissioned as editors in a mass, you would commissioned be by with that, the ecclesial authority, invested no, with editorship by the ecclesial. No, authority? we'd have to crown ourselves. Well, that would just be CNS, RIP. <laughs> anyway, I, um, next. Okay. Zadok the Priest. I don't know what that is. It's the it's the piece of music that they always play immediately after the actual crowning. Oh, Rule Britannia? No, no. It is a sweeping, glorious, majestic piece of music that is now definitely going to be the closing music to this episode. It's, you oh, can't hear it and it, not want to stand Now, Pomp and Circumstance has no. some role in English of not Society, Pomp and it? Circumstance. But do, correct me if I'm wrong. Does Pomp and Circumstance, doesn't it have some role in English Civil Society that it's played in some a circumstance? popular ditty set to the music you describe as Pomp and Circumstance is called Land of Hope and Glory. Yes. That's right. And is, but that's do, not am what I, we're Do about. I remember correctly that Pomp and Circumstance was Macho Man Randy Savage's walk-up music? Yes. Famous that's King of the Ring. Cool. So I'll say, yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm for Pomp and Circumstance became Randy Savage's walk-up music when he won the King of the Ring tournament and was crowned, spoiler alert, 
that's going to my newsletter tomorrow. Then I will say yes on uh, Pomp and Circumstance. All right. I didn't ask you about Pomp and Circumstance. I asked you about Zadok the Priest, but fine. Um, silly hats, JD. Just in general, silly hats? Just or? in yeah. general. I mean, there's going to be a lot. Westminster yeah, Abbey is going to be silly. There's a lot of fascinators, but not... No, but, I mean, we're talking hats, about right? everything from miters to coronets to crowns to, yeah. you know... Oh, yeah, I presume yeah. Cardinal Paroline will just wear Zucchetto, right? I mean, will Cardinal Paroline dress in choir? So Cardinal Paroline is attending the coronation, and so is Archbishop Nichols or Cardinal Nichols. The Car- Cardinal Nichols? Cardinal yeah, Nichols. Cardinal Prefect of the Diocese of Westminster. Um, I'm just making up titles now. The Cardinal, Ar- the Cardinal Archbishop of the Diocese of Westminster, which is the Diocese of London. Um Will they will they dress in choir, which is to say in cassock and surplus, as they would if they were not celebrating a Catholic liturgy, or will they wear house cassock and Mosetta and stuff? I, I don't I don't know this for a fact, but my assumption would be that they will be there in full dress diplomatic gear, so they'll be in the full red cassock. They will not be vested for choir because it's not a liturgy taking place of the Catholic religion and they are not, you know, there as they, well, I don't know what Vinny, that would be my I, guess in terms of what would be appropriate, but I don't know what they'll do. <laughs> I, I, I would be shocked. I expect them to be seated with the diplomat. I mean, I, well, Vincent Nichols might be elsewhere. I don't know. He'll be because, seated with the interreligious guests. Would he'll be, be my seated guess. with the interreligious. So he will not definitely be vested for, or no, or the ecumenical guests, I suppose. Right. He's not going to be sitting with the chief rabbi and the, you know, a selection of imams and, Vested for choir, that would be weird. And I would expect yeah. Cardinal Paroline to be there in, you know, as what he is, which is the Secretary of State and the representative of the Holy Father as uh, as a head of state. So he'll be, I would expect, in his nicest cassock. Um, but if I were them, I would want it. I would, I would, I would want to wear a beretta if I were them. Is all I'm saying. A beretta? Yeah, I, 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 I should. I mean, I, I think that's that. You that would be should. appropriate. Well, are you going to wear a beretta when you watch it? No, I don't have any immediate plans to wear my beretta. Well, I watch Good. it. No. I, I have a very okay. nice um, striped blazer that I'm going to wear, though. Okay, what's next? Uh, okay. Uh, orders of Chivalry, JD. Yes. Yes? I, ha- I, I, I really, if I have one worldly ambition, and you know I have many, but if I had one worldly ambition, I would love to get, and it's probably, I, I was probably on a track for it. If I had just stayed an ecclesiastical bureaucrat and civil servant for the rest of my life, I maybe would have gotten it. But I, I jumped into journalism and then I jumped from journalism to more journalism. And I probably am off the track for it because if I have one secular ambition, I would love to be someday in the order of St. Gregory the Great or some other ecclesiastical order. And I've probably... I, I pro- it probably won't happen now unless some bishop who listens to this show were to nominate me using my full baptismal name and maybe the Holy See would notice. I mean, it's worth a try, especially if a bishop who listens to this show were like at towards 74 or something like that. What are they going to do to you? I mean, if you happen to put my name in is all I'm saying. Let, let me just give you a quick spoiler alert for your life, buddy. The chances of you getting a papal <laughs> order of knighthood or about a slim as me being invited happen. to join. Yeah. Never going to happen. If I had stayed at an ecclesiastical bureaucrat. Sure. It almost certainly would have happened, I think, sure. actually, because they tend to reward ecclesiastical bureaucrats at the end of long careers with that kind of thing. And and rightly so. The civil yes. servants get gongs. That's the idea. But no, your, right. your chances of getting the order of, of Gregory are about the same as me it's being done. invited to join the order of Malta. It's just not <laughs> happening. You might someday be. I'm not holding my breath. 
Next. Uh, all right. Pledging allegiance to the secular state. It depends what kind of allegiance, what the conditions are, and what the circumstances are. Okay, for the purposes of this discussion, let's say, being invited by the Archbishop of Canterbury to swear allegiance and fealty to the new king at the time when traditionally the peers would be offering their their homage to the new king, which is right and proper and traditional, and substitute for sort of people's oath of fidelity. Well, which... I wouldn't do it because I'm not English. Sure, but in general, the principle. Can you hear that wind blowing? Yeah, what's going on? There's a storm brewing. I'm just telling you that, listeners, so you know what's happening. I'm going to close my office window, which I've really enjoyed having open, because a storm's coming up. It's a twister. All right, next. Um, traveling by horse-drawn carriage. Any chance you get? No. You got that wrong, buddy. They're there's no right or wrong. No, there's, there is definitely. What, who told you there's no right or wrong? I, there's always Fair. a right or wrong. Um, Fair. No, it's okay, very next. uncomfortable. Your drink will always spill. Uh, and f the last one, and I think I know where you're going with this, because you actually raised it first, but this has always been on the list. The Macho King Randy Savage. Yes, 100%. Absolutely. Do you remember um, in our house, we were terrified for a long time when after Jake the Snake Roberts bit him, he took the snakes out of the bags that he'd hidden under the ring and then beat him. He took the snakes out and he was, Macho Man was conked out or something and he took those snakes out and then he put Macho Man's head in the bag or something like that. Yeah, I remember that. You were you were worried about that? It was terrifying. That? Yeah, it was terrifying. Oh, you see, I was a Jake the Snake fan, so I was... I was fine of course you were. I was cheering. Okay, I've got a game for you, Ed, and it's uh, it's royal trivia. It's royal saint trivia because this is a Catholic podcast. And I've only actually got four royal saint questions, but they're really hard questions, some oh, of them. Oh, good. Okay. Would you like to play royal saint trivia and it's only four questions and maybe you'll do well? Absolutely. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. So you get one wrong. So to be clear, the best you can do is a C. Are you ready? I am. Although I dispute the I dispute the idea that seventy five percent is is reflective of an average achievement level. I don't think no, that bears out anywhere other than arbitrary American academia. Abgar V is believed to have been the first Christian king in history. Abgar V is believed to have been the first Christian king in history. Ed, in what century did he live? I'm going to say the second century. Oh, I can understand why you'd say that. But Abgar V, who was king of Osrin, with his capital at Edessa, which is in contemporary Turkey, um, died, Ed, in A.D. 50. Ooh. Is believed to have been the first Christian king, and according to tradition, was evangelized by one of the 72 sent out from the Lord to make disciples of all nations. Oh, so he was, he was converted in real time, before even the resurrection. There is... That, according to many traditions, that is so. There is a long-standing tradition that Abgar V, king of Osrin, with his capital at Edessa, having been converted by one of the 72, sent a letter... Presumably two of the 72. They went out two by two. Well, when they get to a city, maybe they split up, or maybe it's like, you know, there's the one Mormon missionary who's cool and the other Mormon missionary who's just kind of there, and maybe he was not counting that one. Anyway, there's a, there's a long-standing, millennial-old pious tradition that Abgar V, after having been converted by one or two of the 72, sent a letter to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, asking the Lord to come to Osrin to heal him of his afflictions, and affirming his belief that either Christ was God or the Son of God. That's incredible. 
pious tradition by which Jesus is said to have given Abgar the fifth a response. In Blessed writing? Are you who, no, by dictation. Blessed are you who has believed in me without having seen me, for it is written concerning me that they who have seen me will not believe in me, and that they who have not seen me will believe and will be saved. But in regard to what you have written me, that I should come to you, it is necessary for me to fulfill all things here for which I have been sent, and after I have fulfilled them, thus to be taken up again to him who sent me. But after I have been taken up, I will send to you one of my disciples, that he may heal your disease and give you life and to your family. That's, J.D., that is the single coolest Pious tradition I have heard in I know years. I know. I cannot I th- believe I, I've made it to this age without having heard that before. Super can I, I sky loved, to King Oswin or whatever his name is. That's awesome. <laughs> I've got the fifth. I loved learning about it. That's cool. Yeah, you gotta put that in your I'm, newsletter next week. That's that's. I'm amazing. I'm going to. I was worried you were gonna put it in yours, but I'm gonna put it in mine for those who. No, 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 my. I've got a full lid. Okay. Ed, in January 2022, Pope Francis the first declared King Francis the second a servant of God. Francis II was deposed in 1861 after an invasion by Victor Emmanuel II. The invasion, this is like a riddle, the invasion was a naval affair. What was Francis II's kingdom? Uh, Venice? I, I don't know anything about the invasion except that I can be certain it was a naval affair. Sicily. Sicily. Sicily, the kingdom of the two Sicilies. That's right. Kingdom of the two Sicilies. Francis II, the last king of the kingdom of two Sicilies, is a servant of God with his canonization process well underway. I think he was probably up for at least recognition as servant of God by the mere fact that he was deposed by the Piedmontese usurper. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. That I think Okay. Now, this one, Ed, I'm only going to read to you once. If you pay careful attention, you'll get it. If you don't, you won't. Okay. So you tell me when you feel ready. I'm ready. Okay. King Duncan of Scotland was killed by Macbeth, who succeeded him. Some years later, Duncan's son Malcolm regained his father's throne after an English invasion gave Malcolm the upper hand over Macbeth. Malcolm reigned as King Malcolm III. Malcolm III had a son named David. David became King David I. He later became St. David I of Scotland. What was St. David's grandfather's name? Robert the Bruce. We'll do. Would you like to do it again? No, I I, I understand <laughs> what you did there. I have no idea. <laughs> well, for our listeners at home, King Duncan of Scotland was killed by Macbeth, who succeeded him. Some years later, Duncan's son Malcolm regained his father's throne after an English invasion gave Malcolm the upper hand over Macbeth. Malcolm reigned as King Malcolm the Third. Malcolm the Third had a son named David. David became King David the First, who later became Saint David of Scotland. His grandfather's name was Duncan. That's nice. <laughs> okay. It was a little, it was a word problem, I guess. It was a word problem. It's fine. You did well. You, you were right that you need to listen carefully. You wouldn't get it. You're doing fine. And you're going to get this one. Okay. Here's a papal question. Our last question. Name three monarchs to have been canonized by Pope Francis. By Pope Francis? By Pope Francis the first. Peace be upon him. Oh, um canonized two of them were canonized together there's a culture these days in the life of the church of canonizing these kinds of monarchs very very quickly oh i'm gonna go with uh oh so it was, it was wait in very very if we're canonizing them very very quickly presumably they must be polish hmm 
Are you asking if any of them was Polish? Uh, were they Polish? One of them was Polish. Then the name was probably Stanislav. Hmm. No? Was it? Wojciech? <laughs> what little state in Italy has a dis... Excuse me. What little state in Europe has a disproportionate number of canonized monarchs, Ed? Well, that would be Austro-Hungary, which is neither little nor... Ed, uh, what little state. state surrounded by Italy has a disproportionate number of canonized monarchs? We often talk about it as an absolute monarchy by divine ordinance. Oh, 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 clever, clever, clever. John the 23rd and JP2. And? Uh, Paul the 6th. Paul the 6th, you did it. Ding, 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 ding. Well done. You redeemed yourself. That's very good. That's very clever. Thank you. I, th- I thought it was as well. That's very good. And I, I was, your yes I immediately, no. When you start saying it's a tiny state surrounded by it, I was like, San Marino? San Marino? Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking that you might, um, but it's you who often talks about the Pope and, uh, as a monarch, and, and rightly so. So I thought you'd get a kick out of that. That is good. That was, that was an good. excellent quote. I learned a lot, JD, and much of it I enjoyed learning. Abgar V is really awesome. That's, I want to read it. I want to read more I need Abgar a picture of Abgar V. Because, well, it'll be in my newsletter next week. All I've read thus far, very honestly, about old Abgar is the Wikipedia, but now I have to read some real stuff. That's, I mean, that's very cool. A number of contemporary scholars have suggested origins of the tradition of Abgar's conversion apart from historical record. Come on, I want it to be true. Modern historians, as you can imagine. Yeah, they're probably applying the critical historical method or something else heretical like that. All right, well... Happy coronation to King Charles III and to every other Pillar Podcast listener. Yes, you heard what I said and I meant it. To every other Pillar Podcast listener, the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira, and we will be back next week. And Kate, can we please have Zadok the Priest as the outro music? I'll send you. Yeah, it goes like this. Rule Britannia. No, it doesn't. Rule Britannia.